to Asia in Washington, the podcast of the Edwin O. Reischauer Center for East Asian Studies at Johns Hopkins SIS. Our website is reischauercenter.org. I'm Monica Weller. Today's guest is Dr. Alicia Campy. She's a China-Mongolia specialist and was a U.S. State Department Foreign Service Officer for 14 years who served in Asian posts, including Singapore, Taiwan, Japan, and Mongolia, and the U.S. Mission to the United States in New York. Since 2013, she has been a research fellow at the Edwin O. Reischauer Center for East Asian Studies and an adjunct professor within the Asia programs at Johns Hopkins SIS, where she teaches a course on the construction of Northeast Asia. In 2016, she became the coordinator of the U.S. State Department's Northeast Asia Regional Studies course at the Foreign Service Institute. She was president of the Mongolia Society from 2007 to 2019 and is now president of the Asia Politics and History Association. She received her bachelor's in East Asian history from Smith College in 1971, obtained an MA in East Asian studies with a concentration in Mongolian studies from Harvard University in 1973, and spent two years in Taiwan at Fujian University. Dr. Campia received a PhD in Central Eurasian and Mongolian studies with a minor in Chinese studies in 1987 from Indiana University. In July 2014, she was awarded the Friendship Medal by Mongolian President Bagbund and in 2011 received the Polar Star, Mongolia's highest medal from President Elbikdoch. In September 2007, she was awarded an honorary doctorate from the National University of Mongolia. Dr. Campy has published over 100 articles and book chapters on contemporary Chinese, Mongolian, and Eurasian issues, and has been a guest on Chinese programs for Radio Free Asia. She advises Chinese and Western financial institutions on Eurasian investment issues, particularly in the mining sector. Her book on the impact of China and Russia on U.S.-Mongolian political relations in the 20th century was published in 2009. Today we will discuss Dr. Alicia Campy's book, Mongolia's Foreign Policy, Navigating a Changing World. Dr. Campy, welcome to the program. Thank you. Looking forward to talking to you. Um, And so to start off, I guess a broader question would be is, what is Mongolia's role in the modern world? Um, Mongolia is uh, right now defining its um, role in the modern world after more than 300 years of relative isolation from um, global affairs because of its uh, colonial experience as an appendage during the Manchu Empire and then later a satellite nation under the Soviet Union system. So um, although it has been an independent country throughout the whole 20th century, its uh, role in the world prior to 1990 and Mongolia's democratic revolution and then followed by the dissolution of the Soviet Union was comparatively muted and uh, in the last 30 years it has attempted to um, realign itself with particularly Northeast Asian countries and now um, as we move into the 21st century more broadly with the Eurasian continent so that it can be integrated more efficiently into the global marketplace mainly because it has abundant natural resources particularly energy resources and these can be used by customers uh, throughout the region and the world but only if Mongolia is linked more efficiently to the rest of the uh, continent. Okay. So then, 
How is Mongolia influenced by its neighbors, particularly China and Russia, uh, which it shares borders with, but also by its third neighbors? Well, Mongolia knows its two great superpower neighbors, um, Russia to the north and China to the south, very well. And they have had centuries and centuries of experience in dealing with these two civilizations um, in far greater depth than just what we meet today in um, our contemporary world. At the same time, Mongolia, because it's based on a nomadic civilization, which does not um, have sedentary agriculture or a long history of cities, is very different from these two major neighbors, but is a unique country because it, during the Mongolian Empire, 800 years ago, conquered and governed these two great neighbors. So its experience in dealing with Russia and China has vacillated over the centuries, and it sometimes, especially in the latter periods when it did not have military prowess and strength, chose to align itself with one of the great powers or the other. So in the 19th century, it was aligned with the Manchu Chinese. In the 20th century, for most of that period, they were um, aligned and part of the Soviet Union's um, a group of nations. Now, in the 1990s, um, inspired by U.S. Secretary of State James Baker, Mongolian policymakers came up with a new a stratagem of foreign policy called the Third Neighbor Policy, which meant reaching beyond its two border neighbors and linking both politically, economically, and culturally with other nations in its region and also even across the oceans to places like the United States. So this third neighbor policy, which has grown and developed over the past 30 years, has evolved from merely finding new sources of um, political stability and financial assistance during its donor era period in the 1990s to today's searching for new economic partners in places as diverse as Vietnam, Indonesia, Brazil, Iran, and Turkey. Great. And so then going more specifically into your book and some of the uh, policies that Mongolia uses um, when conducting foreign relations. How effective have Mongolia's policies of mere diplomacy and wolf strategy been in negotiating relations between its neighbors? If you could just briefly describe them and then go into how they've been used. Um, Mongolia, um, although a small country with a population of only um, slightly over three million, over a landmass that is the size of Western Europe, is um, a country that has very severe geographical and climatical challenges. And um, this is in one way um, responsible for the fact that it is not linked well through various um, rail and road and even cyber links to other countries in its region. 
But at the same time, this lack of connectivity in the past was one of the stratagems that Mongolians used to preserve their independence and national integrity. So in the um, post-Soviet era, Mongolia recognized that its former ally and protector, the Soviet Union, could no longer play that role. And China, its traditional enemy historically, and a civilization very diverse and at times hostile to Mongolian nomadic heritage and um, social principles, was a rising economy that looked more threatening to Mongolian national security rather than um, as a economic, friendly economic partner. So in these circumstances, um, my book um, examines the both the foreign policy st um, strategies of the country in Mongolia's democratic era as, and the foreign economic strategies. Mm -hmm. Basically, these are five. One was that um, Mongolia has its own particular historical experience, which is uh, motivating and guiding its view of national security. And unlike the other nations of the Northeast Asian region, which are basically um, Sinocentric nations, well um, experienced with operating under the Sinocentric system, Mongolia does not operate or view its um, historical um, past and future within that same vein. The second point was that it recognized it was going to have to abandon the strategy of the past several centuries of depending on one or the other of the border neighbors in favor of developing connections to these third neighbors. In other words, reaching beyond geography, um, which was possible in the global internet age and allowed Mongolia to uh, try to diversify uh, its foreign relations and foreign economic partners. The third point was that it consciously chose as an element of its national security to emphasize its nomadic heritage and particularly the founding of the nation um, by Chinggis Khan and to use this specific and unique heritage as a selling point for what we call the branding of Mongolia that makes it a center of interest for tourism and um, uniquely um, develops a reputation and a worldwide audience for um, it to uh, utilize in a soft-powered uh, way. The fourth point was that Mongolia's foreign policy is uh, best understood in these last few decades as mirroring the ideas and the um, goals of its partners uh, that it is talking to in bilateral or multilateral negotiations. And this makes Mongolia a country that has many, many friends and in reality no enemies. Um, but this then 
cloaks the fact that Mongolia does have its own strategy and is a country that is operating under its own agenda. And the fifth point is that Mongolia's foreign economic policy, which I have deemed its wolf strategy, and I can say a few words about that in a moment, is um, the way that it is now trying to utilize its um, energy minerals in an effective way. Uh, sometimes it's making mistakes, sometimes it has been successful, but that when you look at its economic um, policy, the best way to understand it is to always remember that it is uh, reflects strong anti-Chinese overtones. Yeah, I think that's probably quite true of many countries in the region. And so then, uh, going off of that, you mentioned how Mongolia has worked to develop many trilateral relationships to balance foreign influence being put on it, uh, particularly the Chinese-Russia-Mongolia relationship, and also one of the other ones you mentioned is the U.S.-Japan-Mongolia relationship. What have you seen as being the most effective balancing relationships for Mongolia, and do you predict that other trilateral relationships will come into play in the future? Well, in the first 20 years of Mongolia's democratic era, Mongolia was trying to make connections with developed Western Asian democracies and with the remaining superpower, the United States and its allies in um, Europe. Uh, however, as we moved into the 21st century, it was very clear that its economic partners were not those nations. They were somewhat interested in Mongolian minerals or other products, but because of Mongolia's uh, landlocked position and lack of connectivity with other countries in the uh, uh, larger continent, um, they did not actually develop through um, foreign direct investment the ties that facilitated a greater diversification of trade. So in 1989, right at the collapse of the Soviet system, 93% of Mongolian trade was oriented towards the Soviet Union and its um, COCOM partners. They tried to avoid that problem um, in the 1990s because they recognized that rising China and its economy was the most logical partner and um, customer for its um, exports, particularly raw minerals, but it didn't want to fall into domination by the other that other border neighbor. Unfortunately, in the decades of the 1990s, because of um, misguided, uh, policies of Westerners and multilateral organizations which were not concerned about this monopoly and therefore put in um, structures and um, gave strong um, assistance uh, to promote interconnections with the Chinese economy, which ended up causing Mongolia's trade picture to be totally rebalanced. So now more than 90% of Mongolia's exports and imports come from China, which is um, 
by their account and most um, other countries' account, a dangerous situation for any country to be in. So the failure of the um, economic part of the third neighbor policy then was recognized as a severe challenge to Mongolia's um, autonomy and national integrity um, during this decade. And the previous president of Mongolia, whose name was Elbig Dorge, came up with this concept of trilateralism, which was to um, recognize that Mongolia must more efficiently connect to its two border neighbors, but at the same time not be strangled by them. And the trilateral policy meant that Mongolia was sold to both the Russians and the Chinese as a transit corridor or an economic corridor that the two countries could use, particularly as goods and services flowed back um, between the two countries in the um, eastern half of uh, Russia. And so Mongolia decided rather than um, be locked out of the decision making between the two big border nations, that they would develop a trilateral policy where the there would be annual summit meetings and the presidents of the three nations would sit down and decide on mutually acceptable and um, advantageous um, economic, uh, including transportation uh, projects, so that all of these um, regions in um, the inner Asian and far eastern areas of Russia and China, including Manchuria, could benefit, and Mongolia would also find a benefit. But when they began to do this policy in 2014, 15, and 16, this disturbed the Americans and the Western democracies who thought that Mongolia was being dragged back into um, a more authoritarian orbit by its big border neighbors. And so they developed a triangular relationship which was promoted heavily by Mongolia and not accepted so readily by the United States and Japan of Mongolia, China, uh, United States and Japan as a what they call democratic trilateralism to balance the economic trilateralism that Mongolia shares with its border neighbors. Um, the Obama administration was not as interested in this um, concept, but the Trump administration um, has been very receptive to this and has raised American commitment to democratic trilateralism to a measurable extent. So we now have um, annual high-level meetings, mm -hmm. and Mongolia has been included, for example, in the Trump administration's national security um, and defense strategy by name in a much more um, uh, active and public way. Um, Mongolia also likely will use this trilateralism or even quadrilateral, quadrilateral policy um, to include other countries where they, for example, have civilizational as well as economic connections, such as with Turkey or with India mm -hmm. and even with Iran. So right now, Indian 
um, relations with Mongolia are very close, and the United States, as part of its um, Indo-Pacific policy, is also very supportive of India having a growing economic as well as cultural relationship with Mongolia. So one can see, for example, now there is a quadrilateral relationship between the United States, Mongolia, India, and Australia, which is also effective in, for example, the mining sector, as well as in the promotion of democratic values. So actually going off of that, referring to India, recently India and Pakistan both joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization in 2017. Mongolia was the first observer state uh, from 2004 on. Do you think that Mongolia should join the SCO? The, your question is a very interesting one and one which I actually put to members of um, the Mongolian foreign policy establishment in October of this year. Mongolia, when pressured by um, China and Russia to join the um, SCO, always said, we are waiting until uh, India and Pakistan join. And then in 2017, when they did officially change their status to full members, Mongolia did not follow through. Now, in 2016 and 2017, before the actual change of status by India and Pakistan. There was a lot of deliberate discussion in the Mongolian media, which reflected policymakers' views about whether Mongolia should join or should not join the SCO. This also happened to co coincide with a downtime in the Mongolian economy when um, external debt grew very heavily and foreign investors were discouraged from participating in investing in Mongolia because of a changing legal regime. And so at that time, um, when uh, pressure was being put on Mongolia to perhaps change its status, it seems that to me that the change that prevented this next step of full membership probably was because of the 2017 presidential election, mm -hmm. where we moved away from the president, uh, presidency of Elbig Dorj, which was very globalized in his perspective, to that of the present president, Batuluk. And Batuluk is, uh, ran on a campaign message of Mongolia first in great imitation of President Trump's message. And he is much more interested in um, uh, developing Mongolia's um, alternative economies beyond the mineral, such as um, exploiting in a better way its animal resources and in tourism, mm -hmm. and also, as I said, perhaps collecting transit fees for um, from its two border neighbors. So his different approach to uh, foreign policy, which has been um, less active, and the um, the better economic 
relationship that Mongolia was able to achieve with IMF help if from 2016 and 2017 loans and a reinvigoration of Mongolia's relationship with the U.S. and Japan through democratic trilateralism has stymied any Mongolian decision on the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And in October, when I asked policymakers what's going to happen, they said Mongolia will not join. Okay, so that's the current status of that. And so then going back to the U.S., so what do you see as the main U.S. interest in Mongolia, and how do they relate to America's broader interest in the Asia-Pacific? If I just discussed today um, the uh, interest of the Trump administration in Mongolia, I think um, one of the basic um, fundamental reasons for the increased interest in Mongolia and um, interest in helping Mongolia diversify its trade relations by the passing of a famous um, uh, trade Textile Act, which we hope will be passed in, in the spring by the Congress and has already received bipartisan support, and there is no objections from the Democrats or the Republicans to making uh, Mongolia's uh, animal hair textiles enter our market um, uh, tariff-free. Um, but the reasons for this fundamentally um, are related to uh, national defense, and that especially includes North Korea. Mm. Uh, Mongolia has a excellent relationship with North Korea, um, and um, also a very strong um, relationship with South Korea. And so, because it it operates in an environment that's very different from the way Russia or China or Japan or the U.S. Um, uh, discuss and um, act towards North Korea, Mongolia is able to bring North Korea and its diplomats and its researchers into Mongolian organized and held diplomatic dialogues, um, such as the Ulaanbaatar Dialogue for Peace and Security, which is now um, in 2019, it just finished its sixth interition, and four of the six times um, North Korea has sent um, delegates to this international conference in Ulaanbaatar. And this year, these delegations, including the, the ones that came from the United States and um, other countries in the greater region were at the official level, beyond the research level. So Mongolia has, has um, achieved what the six-party talks could not. And Mongolia has consistently, through the different American administrations, from Bush 43 through Obama to Trump, claimed that it could be the intermediary and help its region and the uh, democratic partners that it would like to be more active in their own economy and support Mongolian democracy as it struggles um, through various corruption and other issues, um, it, it could offer these other larger countries 
um, access to North Korea. And that's because Mongolia, which was definitely a much poorer country in 1990 than North Korea, and yet today, 30 years later, is a much more um, solvent country and um, has a much more diversified um, economy and a much higher GDP than North Korea, is not a country um, like other East Asian countries that is wants to teach North Korea or be superior and tell North Korea what's the best path to take. That kind of concept, which comes from a Sinocentric worldview, is not part of the Mongolian um, historical perspective. And because they do not have that mindset, they are perfectly happy to be younger brother to North Korea, to um, evidence great respect and give North Korea honor, which perhaps economically it may no longer deserve, but for Mongolia, this kind of diplomatic game or of um, playing um, of face-saving is not um, a very large part of their foreign policy. And so they get along well with the Koreans, whether from the north or the south. And this is a unique country and that can help both Japan and the United States deal with North Korea in ways that Russia and China cannot. So for the Trump administration, this has been very crucial in the negotiations over North Korea. But um, one also, again, has to remember that with the Indo-Pacific strategy of the Trump administration now, and with a much um, larger approach, a more supercontinent, as Dr. <laughs> Calder used to talk, approach to um, American-Asian policy um, beyond the immediate East Asian area, a country that, like Mongolia, which is a linchpin um, it can help Mongolia, um, it can help the United States and um, its allies deal with Central Asian countries that have a lot of energy resource minerals. It also is an effective voice to talk to Russia and even Iran, which it has good relations with, as, as well as um, a country that can actually be uh, useful in solving some of the nuclear proliferation issues that um, bottleneck and prevent um, real integration and um, connectivity throughout the Northeast Asian region. It doesn't have historical issues of problems with any country, whether it's Japan um, or Russia. Um, but it does have um, close relations with China. However, their, their relationship with China and China's view of Mongolia is always a bit standoffish because these two countries have 1,000 years of, of interaction and most of it's been unpleasant. Yeah, that's quite true. Um, just looking at how they've conquered each other back and forth in some ways. Uh, and so then how effectively is Mongolia grappling with the rise of China, in your opinion? And uh, on top of that, are there lessons for the United States to come out of this? <laughs> well, Mongolia would be very um, surprised to be asked to uh, give, give lessons to the United States on how to deal with China. 
But at the same time, Mongolia probably privately would have some things to say because one of the uh, unique things about Mongolia, small population that it is, far away from the United States, with very small military power now, is that we must remember it is one of the few nations in world history that was a great superpower. And it is very cognizant of its imperial heritage and the importance of Mongolian civilization, which is now reflected in different soft power initiatives that Mongolia has throughout the world to um, remind people that there were some unique methods of administration, of um, conquest, and, and of um, trade promotion that existed in the Mongolian Empire period, which maybe have lessons for us in today's much more interrelated world. And one of the things that the Mongols would probably say to the United States is that trade is a way to promote your civilization and that um, transit trade may be um, a very um, important component that should be considered just as much as um, actual trade of products because Mongolia's small population will mean that it is never a big customer for any nation. But at the same time, its locality and difficult geography, difficult to avoid, difficult to overcome, should not be always considered a negative, but can be considered um, if you are proactive um, as a, um, a way to increase transit connectivity because if you overcome the obstacles in the long run, it's economically beneficial. So what Mongolia is trying to do today as it stands up for democracy, it has a very free press, it um, uh, has a problem dealing with corruption, but this is absolutely in the public eye. It has corruption-fighting agencies, so it's not trying to hide these problems. It's trying to apply the ideas of the Americans to bring your problems out into the open, discuss it, and deal with um, the ramifications of um, less than transparent practices and try to strengthen democratic institutions. But this is a very difficult environment that Mongolia lives in every day, and it is extremely flexible in how it deals with its two superpower na um, neighbors, particularly now a rising and more aggressive China. But at the same time, it is um, able to punch above its weight because a lot of Mongolian present policies are connected to soft power initiatives and trying to show China that it has to um, maintain the integrity of Mongolia's independence and treat Mongolia um, 
with equality and with fairness in economic methods because Mongolian society and connectivity with the developed democratic world beyond the, um, the borders um, allows Mongolia's voice and problems to be heard and understood in a greater region. So this, for example, helps Mongolia handling environmental problems where it likely would not be heard in um, many meetings, but because of its interesting environment, its pristine um, uh, grasslands and mountain areas that are under assault from water difficulties, from climatic change, and from um, policies of its two neighbors, which cause pollution to go into Mongolia. Um, Mongolia, rather than not being heard, brings its problems that the two neighbors are are contributing to and puts them in international forums and thus gets a lot of international support and assistance in rectifying these problems. So do you see Mongolian foreign policies as being effective in maintaining autonomy? Well, Mongolian policy, as I look throughout the, the decades, regardless of president, regardless of political party or administration, has basically focused fundamentally on preserving national security. Now, some of the presidents and prime ministers have been more effective. Some have been more interested in international relations. Others have perhaps been more um, uh, less democratic in mindset less appreciative of um, the ability of third neighbors to make a positive influence in their society. But I will say absolutely um, it is, uh, it can be concluded that all of the um, presidents and prime ministers in the democratic era have truly contributed to Mongolian independence, sovereignty, and economic development. And I am um, very hopeful that this will continue in the decades um, uh, to come. And I believe Mongolia, because it truly has impressive deposits of natural resources and is a key country to link Northeast Asia and Central Asia and Western Asia to each other, therefore I believe that um, in the next decades it will become a major um, economic and even political force on the Eurasian continent. So earlier on you mentioned wolf strategy. Could you explain exactly what that is? Uh, the wolf strategy is not my terminology. It was used in um, media and blogs. Uh, by um, reporters and journalists to describe how the Mongolians behaved. And they chose to um, relate this behavior to that of a wolf, which I feel is very relevant. Now, most of us don't have much experience dealing with wolves nowadays, except if you were on the outskirts of perhaps Yellowstone Park. But the wolf is a very interesting animal, and there was a, a wonderful book that was written um, in the beginning of the 2000s on um, uh, experiences of a Chinese who was part of the Red Garden sent to Inner Mongolia and had to relate 
his experiences of being living with nomad, Mongolian nomads who were um, beset by wolves. And he learned the value of wolves to the ecology at the same time he understood there were times you have to kill the wolf. But the wolf strategy of fighting, of hunting, of survival is very unique among animals because the wolf can be extremely solitary and independent and survive on its own through very difficult conditions. But at the same time, the wolf has the ability when it deems it's necessary to hunt or to survive, to work in large packs and to ally itself with other wolves and then together in a unique way of hunting, which is not fully understood by naturalists, can communicate across large distances with each other and then encircle prey and slowly with perhaps even as far as 100 miles of the circumference of a circle, slowly move together and contract the circle, killing prey so that they can um, hunt successfully and capture the animals they need to survive. Mongolia is a country that can and has existed totally off by itself, ignored by other countries, and able to exist in this um, isolation because climate and geography are so harsh. Seven months of the year, Mongolia is below um, freezing, and it also is a country where one cannot successfully apply agricultural techniques uh, the Soviets tried to do this. All they did was destroy the land, which can't even revert back to its natural grass state easily because there simply isn't moisture. So under the, tr the recent centuries of climatic conditions, um, life in Mongolia can only really exist um, with a um, dispersed form of um, nomadic herding, which is very different from ranch style. This is why Mongolia doesn't have many cities. And the cities um, don't successfully contribute to the economic development of Mongols, but are rather um, just sources attracting money and capital away from the natural resources that exist throughout the rest of the country. And these cities are artificially supported because they need so much money to bring in heat and electricity and modern conveniences to keep a sedentary population in an area which basically is not formed um, on rivers which can sustain human life in a normal way. So under these conditions, Mongolia um, is very accepting of the fact that it has to struggle to survive. 
which is why one of the things I talk about is when when foreigners and multilateral institutions try to pressure Mongolia by withdrawing aid or withdrawing loans into a certain foreign policy or foreign economic action, they usually fail because the Mongols are not influenced by economic hardship. They expect life to be hard. And when it's hard, they don't complain, they don't strike, they don't riot. But at the same time, when life is good and we make a lot of money, the Mongols are not a saving people. They are not like other East Asians that will save for their child's education or their old age. Instead, they'll go and buy a bigger size Land Rover and have a big party with their friends and spend all their money. So this immediate consumer attitude makes them accept the very difficult life that their isolation and lack of connectivity has in the past given them. But at the same time, they have the facility of understanding very quickly that people who were my enemy in the past, now I need to work with. So although Chinese-Mongol relations have a history of animosity, the Mongols have allowed and encouraged Chinese investment and trade and now are sending students to Chinese universities to get Chinese language so that they can participate on a more equal footing from the trade that they understand is absolutely necessary for the development of the country. They do understand that for 70 years they were isolated from the rest of the developed world by their relationship um, with the Soviet Union. But here in the present democratic era, they also understand that it is that relationship with the Soviet Union that kept them from being incorporated into China and so preserved their national independence. So they are very grateful to the Russians for that. Now they see joining multilateral organizations, reaching out to new partners, as I said, as diverse as Indonesia and Brazil and Kuwait, um, are, are strategies like a wolf of partnering with people who are not necessarily like you, but you find common ground to work on a common problem. So that's why the wolf strategy, finding ways to either go it alone and survive or join with others to maximize benefits, this kind of flexibility is in the Mongolian mentality, but at the same time, one should not be confused, which foreigners often are, to think that Mongols have no strategy, have no inner core of basic values, because they do, and they um, can be very manipulative as well as flexible. And we should understand that they have their own agenda as we in the United States or in other countries have our agenda. So everybody's playing everyone else. And it's important that we out, who are outside Mongolia understand that the Mongols are looking at us, whether we're Chinese or Russians, French or Americans, and seeing where can they gain maximum advantage. So if we all also demand maximum advantage in our policies from our relationship with Mongolia, they will not be 
disappointed and they will not be angry because this is a kind of world that they understand. And this is one of the reasons why the Trump strategy of bottom line economic development is very similar to that of President Batulik's strategy, which reflects traditional old style nomadic values. Great. And then one other question. Is Mongolia democracy sustainable? Mongolians, because of their difficult climate and geographical location, are very independent-minded people. Part of the problem is they are not good team players, even in their own society amongst themselves. But this independence and this ability to act on their own and to survive what for other countries and other people were very unsurvivable um, conditions means that Mongolian democracy, which is also connected to um, the idea of meritocracy, the idea of independence of thought and action, um, these things have existed in Mongolian society for centuries because there was no government or lord or other power who could save the nomad and his animals from a sudden storm or who could come and bail you out when you made a bad decision. People had to find their own way. Of times they, they failed. But most of the time, they succeeded. And so I believe Mongolian democracy, as long as it is truly reflective of the principles of the Mongolian people, and not just um, a textbook theoretical concept imposed by outside powers, um, mm -hmm. will continue to exist and grow stronger in Mongolia over the next years. Our guest today has been Dr. Alicia Campi. Dr. Campy, thank you for joining us. Nice to be with you. Asia in Washington is a production of the Edwin O. Reischauer Center for East Asian Studies at Johns Hopkins Sice. Visit our website at reischauercenter.org.